You were in Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to ask you to, t- to turn to Matthew chapter 16 and stay there in Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to look at the Word of God. Uh, today we're going to address the question that every human being must answer. Every human being must answer regarding Jesus Christ. And that is, who do you say that I am? I recently did a Google search on what people say about Jesus. Who do they say he is? And it returned 48,700,000 results. So you think a lot of people are asking that question? I think a lot of people are asking that question. And by the way, it is the answer to this question that will determine everybody's eternal destination. It is the answer to that question that will determine everybody's eternal destination. A.W. Tozer made this statement, Christianity rests upon one foundation, Jesus Christ. Before anyone can understand the depth of the Christian experience and the dynamics of living the crucified life, this foundation needs to be established. Mark Jones in his book, Knowing Christ, states, the right answer to this question is simple enough to save a child and at the same time complex enough to keep theologians busy for all eternity. If eternal life means knowing Jesus Christ, we cannot afford to be ignorant about the one who is the chiefest among ten thousands. And by the way, eternal life does indeed rest upon knowing who Jesus Christ is. And you know as we teach here in this church, we talk about belief, we talk about knowing. It is both in that, uh, not only merely in an intellectual manner, but it is in that experiential manner. And that experience is that born-again experience of being a child of God. John the Apostle called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Peter calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ and states his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. Thomas, after seeing the resurrected Christ, bowed at his feet and he declared, My Lord, my God. The Apostle Paul called him the image of the invisible God in Colossians and considered all things dung compared to knowing Christ. The writer of Hebrews calls him the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his nature. And I could go on and on and on and on and cite biblical examples of the impact of Jesus of Nazareth. And the reason I do so is simply this. If this is the impact of Jesus of Nazareth on those early church followers and church founders, then the impact to us has to be equal or greater. We cannot come before the Lord. We cannot worship a casual Christ. One thing we know is that men and women, because of Jesus Christ, have surrendered their vocations for Him, lived for Him, suffered for Him, and many more, many, many more, have considered the worth of Christ and have determined to die for Him. So the answer to this question as to who Jesus is is the singular most important question anyone will be asked to answer. And today we're going to look at the text in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20, where our Lord asked His disciples this critical question, Whom do you say that I am? 
And we will see how it is answered. And today I ask everybody to consider with all honesty, with all integrity, what is the answer to that question? And how do our lives reflect that declaration? Now I have here some index cards. Ricky, if you would come forward, brother. And I want you to just take a brief moment. We're not going to collect them. Nobody's going to see them but you. So don't worry about the right answer. But I want you to take a moment and write down who do you say Christ is. Just write it down. Put it in your Bible. Like I said, nobody's going nobody's gonna to look at it. It's yours. It's your souvenir for today. A, a two-bit piece of paper. But I want you to just take a quick minute and just write down whom do you say that Christ is. And while he's giving out those cards, let me give you some background information to the text. We pick up here, and Jesus is traveling through Gentile territory, right? After being confronted by the scribes, after being confronted by the Pharisees. And in this Gentile territory, he does some great miracles. He does some really amazing miracles. And as we will see... In Mark chapter uh, 7 and Matthew 15 and 16, we see the following. He heals a Syrophoenician woman, right? He heals the woman's daughter from a demon. And if you recall, right, that was the woman who said, hey, it's not for me to, Jesus, she came to Jesus asking that he heal the daughter. And Jesus said, hey, you know, I came to the house of Israel, and he says, not good to take the, you know, the food for the children and give it to the dogs. And she makes that remarkable statement. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall. And he goes, I haven't seen faith like this in Israel, right? So he heals the Syrophoenician woman's daughter from a demon. He goes on to heal a deaf mute in Mark 7, 31. He feeds 4,000 in Mark, uh, Matthew 15, uh, 32 through 39 and Mark 8. He condemns the Pharisees. And lastly, he heals a blind man in Bethsaida. Right? So he's doing all these great uh, miracles. And soon Christ will make his march to Calvary. He's going to make his march to Calvary. Now, he's in the area of Caesarea Philippi, a Gentile city that had aligned itself with Rome, named after Julius Caesar in particular, and Philip the Tetrarch. And this city was toppled and rebuilt by the citizens of the city using their own funds. They never went. As such, it became incorporated as a Roman territory with full Roman citizenship and full rights. The city was about 25 miles due north of Bethsaida, where we last saw Jesus. And yet it is in this region, in a Gentile region, that Christ makes this incredible messianic declaration. And I think it's rather ironic that Christ would indeed do a total revelation of his Messiahship in Gentile territory. So if you have those index cards, please, I just want you to write one sentence, whatever. Who do you say that Christ is? This is about being honest to yourself, right? Like I said, nobody's going to collect them. Nobody's going to do anything. So this is where we come in in Matthew chapter 16. And here is the text. This is the background. Christ is making his march to Jerusalem, right? And we pick up in verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district 
of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do the people say that I am? And we see right away from the very beginning of the text, verse 13, that indicates that Jesus is deliberately beginning to go on the move. He's moving forward. He's going forward. His ministry had been going on for quite some time. And the disciples, when you think of the disciples themselves, they must have come to some conclusion by now of who they thought Jesus was, right? Think about it. I mean, back in Matthew chapter 16, right, Jesus makes this statement in verse, uh, verse 8. He said, but Jesus says, aware of this, said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not understand or remember the five loaves, the 5,000, and how many baskets you picked up? By the way, there were 12 baskets extra. Or the seven loaves or the 4,000, and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? They had seen great miracles. And not only that, they had seen other miracles. Demons cast out. They've seen so water turned into wine. They had seen so many great miracles. And they had to come to some kind of conclusion. As it says in Mark 4, Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? I submit to you, That with the amount of lives that have been changed by the power of the gospel, each and every one of us has to come to the very same conclusion. We have to come to a conclusion as to who is this that causes lives to be changed for the glory of his name. You know, faith always expresses itself in a public confession of Christ. If there isn't that public confession of Christ, you could rightly conclude there is no real saving faith. And that confession of Christ is not merely a judgment as to who Jesus is, as much as it is a declaration of Christ as Savior and Lord. They go together. I was talking to someone this week and I made this statement to them. I said, faith... To be a Christian should be a verb, should be an action word, not a static piece of data or a set of uh, passive uh, or, or, or set of intellectual facts concerning Christ. Faith is active and it's not passive. Faith is growing and is not stunted. Faith is being rejected and persevering. Faith counts the cost, the suffering, and the worth of Christ. Being a follower of Christ is not a one-and-done experience, but rather a lifetime of sacrifice, commitment, suffering, self-mortification, worship, adoration, praise. That's saving faith. Faith should be a verb. It should be an action word. And not a noun, not something that is just a a restricted object. Following Christ is a life of submission to Him. A heart surrendered to Him results in living and saving faith. I heard the words of somebody. Someone was telling me the story of somebody else who used to be a follower of Christ. 
And they ran into a mutual friend. This is true. They ran into a mutual friend and they said, how is so-and-so? And, you know, they said, oh, you know, this person's doing this, that, and the other thing. And he said, well, is this person going to church? And the friend explained that the person said, well, I'm trying to find my faith. I'm trying to find my way. I'm trying to find what makes me happy. That's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is a life of submission to God. It is a life of submission to Christ. It's not about what we make us happy. It's about what we do that must be pleasing to Him. You listen to a lot of preachers today, and a lot of preachers talk about Christ, and they use the Scriptures, and they talk about God, but if you notice the words, the centrality of their message is about what God wants to do for us. But very few preachers out there talk about our responsibility to Him. That our satisfaction and our joy is in Him. On Tuesday nights, we're going through the Gospel, uh, the Epistle of Romans. And we studied last week how Paul calls himself a slave. You know, used to be a slave to sin, now become a slave to righteousness. And we talked about what it means to be a slave. That a slave means you have no rights of yourself. And so Paul says we went from being slaves of sin that we could only do the bidding of the Master to slaves of righteousness. And so he tells them, therefore consider yourself dead to sin. You're either going to serve one Master, right? You're either going to serve one or the other. Who do you serve? If we're followers of Christ, we are slaves of righteousness. I mentioned at the very beginning, Peter calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. A bondslave. Paul used this the same term. A bondslave of Jesus Christ. We talked about this Tuesday night. What's a bondservant? It's a slave who has been offered his freedom, but loves his master so much, he said, well, you know what? I'm going to serve you. I'm voluntarily going to serve you for the rest of my life. I will be obedient to you. And bondservants in the first century were noticed by the earring that they would have pierced in their ears, which indicated this person was offered their freedom, but instead surrendered their freedom to serve Christ. Well, if you come to Christ, guess what? You're a bondservant of Christ. You were offered your freedom, but you took that freedom and you surrendered it to Him. The problem is, is a lot of people at the proclamation of the gospel, like the message of the freedom, take the freedom and say, I'm on my way. I'm free. They don't surrender themselves to Christ. And this is very central to the text. We are considering who who is Jesus? Who is Christ? Listen, if you call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ and you cannot answer that question, there is fundamentally a problem. Fundamentally a problem. So in verse 13, we see Jesus is on the move. We see the disciples are going to be challenged. If you look at verse 14, he says, um, at the end of verse 13, he says, now I want you to notice this. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? I want you to circle people. The first question is, who do people say who Christ is? Now, we're not even going to go down that rabbit trail today. 
to say who do people say Christ is. We'd be here all day if we were going to tackle that question. But Jesus is setting the stage. What does the exterior world, the people who have been witnessing the signs and the wonders and the miracles of Christ, who have sat under His preaching, who has heard the amazing things, have seen Him preach, as, as it says in the first, book, uh, first chapter of Mark, who is this man who speaks with authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisee? What is the outside world saying who Christ is? Notice the response of the disciples in verse 14. And they said to him, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. Now notice the response that they're getting from him. Who are the people saying Christ is? Well, the first one, they said John the Baptist. Well, why John the Baptist? Well, John the Baptist was the most recent prophet after 400 years of silence to emerge. John the Baptist was a man who preached with intensity. John the Baptist was one that was uncompromising. John the Baptist confronted the scribes and the Pharisees. John the Baptist preached of the kingdom of God. Get ready, the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist was a prophet who was held in high esteem by the people. So it's the first one that perhaps in many people's minds came to mind. Well, this guy's John the Baptist. Notice who else they say. They say, well, maybe Elijah. Why Elijah? There was a great fascination with Elijah in Jewish history, primarily because Elijah was taken to heaven alive. Furthermore, it was Elijah, it was told that will be the forerunner of the Messiah on that great and terrible day of the Lord. Elijah was the prophet who stood in the gap against an apostate Israel. Remember, we talked about that last week. He stood on Mount Carmel, uh, 850 to 1. 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. And he said, someone, we're going to make a decision here this day, and the decision is going to be, who is God in Israel? And We're not going to repeat that message. If you want to hear it, it's out there. But he called down fire from heaven. He slayed the prophets of Baal. Elijah did many other great miracles. He prayed that it wouldn't rain in Israel because Baal was supposedly the god of rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. He raised the dead. Maybe Christ was the reincarnation of Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. Why Jeremiah? Jeremiah was the weeping prophet as he laments for an apostate people of Judah right before the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. He was a preacher of righteousness to Judah. And while all rejected him, yet he held steadfast to Jehovah. Then there are some general Thoughts. Perhaps some thought that he was Moses or the prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18, that one was going to come who is greater than Moses. But you notice there's one common denominator. And the common denominator that the people are saying is he was another man. He was another man. 
And though these men were anointed men, they were men nonetheless. And attributing to Jesus greatness on a human scale may seem significant, but there is a problem with this. He does not fit the human scale. This is much like many today who think of Jesus as the supreme moral example, the greatest teacher that ever lived. This falls so far short of the glory, the grandeur of Jesus, plus it fails to consider His divine nature. And let me say something. Such responses are insufficient and are indicative of hearts of unbelief. Take a look at verse 15. And he said to them, this being Jesus, going from who does the greater population think that I am, he now tunes in on the twelve. And he says, who do you, who do you say that I am? And here comes the most important, the most pointed question in this dialogue, and quite frankly, in all of history. Who do you say that I am? Notice, I asked you the last time, circle people. Now I ask you to circle you. Because this is a question that everybody must answer. Who do you say that I am? Every human being is going to have to answer that. Every person, all in the sound of my voice, will have to answer this question. And your answer to this question will determine your eternal destiny. I can't be more direct than that. Notice here that Jesus is not content in knowing what others are saying about Him. Jesus knew what others were thinking about Him. His question was really directed toward His disciples. He now forces the issue and turns the issue to the disciples in a very introspective and a very personal way. Get this picture. They gave Him what the consensus of the crowds was. But now He turns and says, Who do you say that I am? The time for evaluation and contemplation for the disciples is over. The time for decision has come. This is the question that every living human being must answer. This is the time to make a decision and make a confession of faith. And I submit to you something else. Today, God calls to all in attendance, all who might be listening to this message, The same call, who do you say that I am? If Christ is a mere man, if Christ is a lesser God, if Christ is a mighty prophet, if Christ is a lucky charm, if Christ is a God among many gods, then you do not know the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Savior, the one true God. Hey, Jesus made this statement in John 8, 24. I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins for unless you believe that I am He. Unless you believe that I am He and the emphasis there is on the I am. You shall die in your sins. The call for you to enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ goes out to you and to everyone else to repent to turn from a dead faith, 
and turn to Christ to a living faith. To place your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. The only one who can save you from your sins. To go from being a violator of God's law. And under the justice and under the sentence of God. To being one filled with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And being accepted in the family of God. And the urgency. My urging to everyone today is to repent and to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. So here we have the background. Here we see what's going on. Jesus issues the challenge. and Let's look at verse 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now I think it's kind of odd. That was Peter who made that declaration. In one ways, it's not, right? Because Peter has always been identified as a leader of the disciples. It's Peter who preaches on Pentecost. It's Peter who preaches that first service that the church is born. But Peter always had that foot and mouth disease. As a matter of fact, a little right past this, he's going to stick that foot back in his mouth again and the Lord's going to rebuke him. But notice Peter's statement. He's not merely stating an opinion here. He is making a public confession of his faith in Christ made possible by divine revelation. Notice what he says. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. First of all, Christ. Who is the Christ? He's God's anointed. He is Messiah. He is Mashiach. The promised one, the deliverer of Israel, the savior of the world. He is making that declaration. Thou art the Christ, the savior of the world. The Christ is the one foretold by the prophets, the one declared by Bethlehem's sky, by the angels, who declared boldly, for born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. He is the fourth man in the fire with uh, with the three Hebrew boys in Daniel chapter 3. He is the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. He is the one whom Jacob wrestled with all night. He is the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He is the prophet that was to come and who would be greater than Moses. He is the Passover lamb whose blood will be shed for the remission of sins. He is the creator of all there is, as Paul states, all things were created by him and for him. He is God's servant in Isaiah 53 who wrote, despised and rejected of men, for he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He is the one whom the prophet Zechariah prophesied that Israel will look upon me whom they have pierced and will mourn for him as one mourns for an only one. He is the one found worthy to take the title deed of the earth in Revelation chapter 5. He is the one John the Apostle saw walking among the lampstands and when he saw him he fell at his feet as dead. He is the rider on the white horse in revelations in 19 who is clothed with a robe dipped in blood his name is the word of god he is king of kings and lord of lords this is our christ this is our lord this is the one who peter declares thou art the christ 
And he's the one that we should be declaring with the same enthusiasm, with the same glory, with the same magnificence. Listen, we don't, we don't have an ideology. Get that out of your head. We worship a living Savior, one who was crucified, dead, buried, rose from the grave again. And Peter got it right this time. He got it so right. He was clear, and each one of those disciples will have to make that decision right there. And you know what? Eleven did. One didn't. Did you ever wonder to yourself, how is it possible that Judas spent three and a half years with Christ? With Christ, not under a certain pastor's teacher or an evangelist's teacher, with the Lord himself, and did not believe. There's a new thing that's uh, hitting Christianity today called deconversion. You have all of these so-called famous Christians whether they wrote a book, whether they were a preacher, whether they had a big church. And they're coming out and they're deconverting. I am no longer a Christian. I don't know what I am, is what they say. But I'm not a Christian anymore. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. Some deconvert with vitriol, nastiness. They come out and they condemn But they've come to this newfound ambivalence. And of course, the Christian world goes crazy. Oh, so-and-so deconverted. You know, the one who wrote all the, most of the major songs for Hillsong. Deconverted. And he came out cursing. And he came out with horrible things to say about Christians and the church. And the Christian world goes, oh, what's going on? All these people are deconverting. Hey, Go back 2,000 years. Judas would have come out and tweeted his deconversion after he uh, betrayed Jesus that night in the garden. This is not new to Christianity. Many people come into the church, but few. Jesus said many are called, but what? Few are chosen. There are going to be people that receive the word and they receive the word with joy. But when the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches occur, they do what? It comes and it chokes the word away. They come into the church, they get culturized in the church, they say hallelujah, praise the Lord, all the other different buzzwords. But when it comes down, they cannot make the confession that thou art the Christ, Son of the living God. You know, Peter gets a lot of knocks. Right? For his denial. But there's a few things you want to throw at Peter and give him props for too. Peter was the only one in that garden that stood up for the Lord. Peter was the one, even though he went down there, he went down by the fire. He was just right a stone's throw away. We don't know that about any of the other disciples. Peter was the one who was stood by the Lord and when he betrayed him, he bet- but he repented in tears. We must be in a position where we answer that question, who is Christ? 
And you know what? The sum total of Peter was on his death as he was crucified upside down. Why? Because he felt he wasn't worthy to die the same death of his Lord. And he begged his persecutors, crucify me, I beseech thee, upside down. Why did he do that? Because to Peter, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's words were oh so right on that day. Look at verse 17. Look at Christ's response to Peter. Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Matthew expands on Peter and the Lord's response. Peter's response was a divine declaration given by divine revelation of the Holy Spirit. God had opened Peter's heart to the deeper knowledge of Christ. The Christ who was the Messiah. The Christ who was the Savior. And therefore, his proclamation becomes his profession of faith. What do you say when people say, what do you mean you're a Christian? Do you say I'm a Protestant? Do you say it means I'm not a Roman Catholic? What do you say? What does Christ mean to you? And how is Christ portrayed? And how is Christ declared in your life? Peter did not arrive at this conclusion on his own logic. It's his confession of faith. And Peter gets it right with the declaration. If any disciples had any doubt as to who Christ was here in this moment, this declaration cleared up any ambiguity. Do our declarations, do the declaration that we make clear up all ambiguity? Do people look at us and do they look at our lives and is Christ screaming out? Look at verse 18. The Lord continues. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not overpower it. Now I really want to take you through this so that you understand this kind of play on words that the Lord is doing here with Peter. He says that you are Peter. The Greek word for Peter there is Petros. Petros means a little stone, a little rock. Something you could pick up, a pebble, something you could skim across a lake. He says, you are Petros. And then he goes on to say, and upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Now, Petra means a huge boulder. It could mean a cliff. A good example of Petra is at the end of Matthew chapter 7, you know where the Lord says, Blessed is the man who builds his house upon the rock. Right? He gives the analogy. One guy builds his house upon the sand, the storm comes and the house is destroyed. Then the Lord says, Bless, um, Then there is a man who comes, he builds his house upon a rock. 
He's not talking about a little pebble, a little stone. He's talking about a gigantic boulder that it was built upon. This is what he's saying. You are, Peter, you are a little stone. But upon this rock... Now, what's the rock? That is the whole center of interpretation. You know, Roman Catholic Church will say, see, the Lord is pointing to Peter to be the first pope. Boy, that is really a stretch. i got to tell you, it's really a stretch. He's not saying, I'm going to build on this, Peter. I'm not going to build, I'm not going to build a church upon Petros. It's like me saying, I'm going to build a church upon a little stone, a little pebble. What is the Petra? What is the boulder? What is the massive cliff that Christ is talking about? It is this. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's Peter's proclamation that he just made. Thou art the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior of the world. You are the Son, the living God. And Christ is saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for you're Peter, you're Petros, you're a little rock. But upon this rock, what rock? The confession of Christ. It is the confession of Christ. That the church has been built upon. And I'll take it one step further. It is the confession of Christ that either your faith is built upon or it's not. It's not built upon your works. For by no works of the law shall any flesh be justified in his sight. Romans 3.20 It's not built on your good intentions. Your faith is not built on your good moral character. Your faith is not built upon how many times you come to church. Your faith is built upon the confession that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Strip that away, there is no faith. And that's what the Lord is telling him here. Built upon the confession of Christ. Built upon that thou art the Christ. We see this as the Lord says He's going to build His church. Interesting word for the word church. In Greek, it's ecclesia. In Spanish, it's iglesia. Right? But the word means called out ones. Called out ones. What are we called out from? What are we called out from? Anybody? We're called out from the world. We're called out from death. We're called out from this physical realm into a spiritual realm. We're called out to be peculiar people. Unique people. That's what that means. Not weird people. Unique. And we're designed, as Peter said, to declare the excellencies of of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. If we are children of the church, if we are sons and daughters of Christ, we are called out from the world. A sad thing is happening is that more and more people are finding their comfort in the world than rather in the church. And that's just a fact.
Notice what he says. He's going to build this church. He says the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Why cannot the gates of Hades overpower the church? Stay with me, folks. Because death is the final fruit of a decision. Satan's ultimate weapon is death. But because Christ has defeated death, all of the called out ones will never face death. They'll live for eternity. And consequently, death shall not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. We have seen this most recently as my mother passed away. I'll be perfectly honest with you, or thrilled. And I'll be perfectly honest with you, I'm jealous for the things that she is seeing as a testimony of her faith There's the certainty of that resurrection, that her soul has been resurrected, and then one day, praise God, at the trumpet, at the trumpet blast, at the voice and the shout of the archangel, the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and we which remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Yeah, her body, I, I stood at the gravesite. There at the gravesite is my grandfather, my grandmother, my father, and my mother. And I stood there thinking like I stood when I buried my father, saying, Oh my goodness, this is such a waste of money. Because the day is coming when this hole is going to rip open. And no matter how far they buried them down and how much concrete they threw in there, boom, it's going to blow up. Amen, my sister Isabella. It's going to blow up and it's going to come. And the dead of Christ are going to rise. There is a certainty of that for all who are in Christ Jesus. I don't know. That tickles me to death. So the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. This is a picture of the church moving against the gates of hell. Big city gates that are bound. And what is the church doing? The church is bulging open the gates of hell. And saving souls. Verse 19. He said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and earth. And whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What are the keys? What are the keys? It's the gospel proclamation. That's the keys. The keys to eternal life is the gospel proclamation that all men can be saved, all people can be saved from their sin through repentance and faith in Christ. Christ gave those keys to Peter, and Peter preached that first message on Pentecost Sunday. And what did he proclaim? Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Just indulge me, it's almost over. Acts chapter 2. Listen to the words of Peter, beginning with verse 22. 
Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you also know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Look at verses 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat upon one of his descendants upon his throne. And he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth which you see today. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Same guy that said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, on that great Pentecost Sunday, with the keys of the gospel, preached that grace message. Where are those keys today? We have them in the gospel. We are to go forth and proclaim the message of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 20. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Jesus warns them to tell, not to tell anyone why. Because the full message of Messiah at that point in time could not be understood without the cross, without Calvary, without the empty tomb. Jesus is about to prepare them for what is to come. Had the disciples gone forward and proclaimed this news, it would have led to people seizing Jesus and forcing him to be there militaristic, their political leader in Israel. And there was so much more that God had in store before this message would become fulfilled. And from this point on, Jesus sets his eyes to Jerusalem to fulfill the plan of God. Today we have a complete gospel message. There is only one application to this message, and it is, who do you say that Christ is? I gave you some index cards, and I asked you to write on it. Who do you say that Christ is? And I hope you were truthful and honest with yourself. Like I said, we're not going to collect them. But now I want you to take a look at what you wrote. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Is what I wrote 
whom I reflect in my daily life. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Is that reflected in your life? Is it reflected in your desires? Is it reflected in your passions? Is it reflected in where you're spending your time? Is it reflected in your meditations? If He is indeed the Christ, are you spending time with the Christ? If He is indeed with the Christ, are you filling your mind with the things of Christ? If He is indeed the Christ, are you living a life worthy of Christ? If you say that Christ is Savior and Lord, the Son of God, Does your life reflect that declaration? And if not, why? I call on you today to trust your life to Christ. To turn from your sin and turn from yourself. And cry out to God for mercy. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you today. And we pray that each each and every one of us, myself included, would be able to answer with absolute clarity, with absolute honesty, and with absolute integrity. Who do we say Christ is? I always have this terrible fear, Lord, that perhaps many are not honest with themselves. And they can read this passage of Scripture, and in actuality, it will be nothing more than a historical message at, at the very best. Teach us, Lord, to come and deal with ourselves. We ask at this moment, Lord, you would extend your hand today, Lord, to reprove, to rebuke, to admonish, to convict, and to bring about repentance, dear God. For we know that your church is in need of repentance. Lord, we ask if there are any here, Lord, that feel the convicting hand of the Holy Spirit, that, Lord, that they would repent and turn in faith to the only one who could save them from their sins. And that's Jesus Christ. If there are any here, Lord God, that know not Christ, may they repent and turn to Christ. Father, Lord God, we just thank You for Your Word. We pray, Lord, that this message, Lord, it won't leave as soon as we walk out the door, but it would cause us to consider Christ. May the Holy Spirit beat upon us, Lord, in our heart and in our soul. Who do you say Christ is? 
We thank you for the truthfulness of the gospel, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.